Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together to debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. Welcome back to Vince and Jason Save the Nation. Today we have a very special guest. It's Dave Rubin, the host of The Rubin Report and also the author of the great book, Don't Burn This Book, Thinking for Yourself in an Age of Unreason. That's a New York Times bestseller. He's got another book on the way. We'll talk about that and so much more on this episode of Vince and Jason Save the Nation. But first, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Gold Co. Dave Rubin, thank you so much for uh, stopping by and uh, spending some time with us here at The Daily Caller. You know, I had nothing better to do this morning than save the nation. <laughs> I woke up, I said, let me do something different today. Instead yes. of burning the nation down, let me see if I can save it. And yes, that's are. right. In fact, the, the name of your next book is Don't Burn This Nation, right? Don't burn, don't this, burn country? this country. That's don't right. Burn don't this burn this country. country. Excuse we, me. we discussed nation. Nation was in the running, but we went we went with country. There could have been planet. You know, we had a couple couple yeah. options there. But yeah, man, does it feel like everything's burning or what? I mean, it I does. was joking with the title. Jeez. It does. It does feel like that. I let me. I just want to start with some biographical questions of you. I the thing that uh, interests me is that you got your career started as a stand-up comedian. Is that right? I was funny a long time ago. Uh, yeah, I started doing stand-up. I graduated college in uh, 1998, which feels like many, many lifetimes ago. I can't believe that's 23 years ago already. And uh, I started doing stand-up in New York City, did it for about 12 years in New York, worked the road. I mean, I lived that life of standing out in Times Square, handing out tickets yeah. you know, for free comedy shows six nights a week, sometimes two hours a night just to get some stage time. I had the ups and downs of it. I passed most of the the primo clubs. And I, I was always kind of doing political stuff and media related stuff. Like I was making fun of Wolf Blitzer and CNN before it was cool and before everybody was doing all that stuff. Um, and then and then I just started shifting. You know, I realized kind of that a lot of, you know, if you think about comedy in like the 80s and 90s, there was this idea. And, and even before that, that, you know, you'd get on the Tonight Show, you'd get on like the Johnny Carson Tonight Show. So this is like Seinfeld and Ellen DeGeneres and Louis Anderson and Tim Allen, everybody. You'd, you'd get a five minute set on there. If you did well, you'd sit down with Johnny, you'd become a star. And that was sort of done when I started comedy in the late uh, in the late 90s. And basically what happened was I had all of these guys that had been doing comedy way longer than me that weren't getting anywhere. Nobody was leaving the club. So the clubs became there was just like this glut. And then the Internet started popping up. And I was just like, ah, I don't want to be some like depressed alcoholic comedian in a club making no money forever. So I started doing some more stuff online. And that's really where things started taking off. Yeah. Amazing. So, so the internet, is that really where uh, comedians can kind of prove themselves now? Is that where they, uh, where the, you know, they first get their start, they go viral and then people start to notice them. Yeah. Look, you don't have to spend those hours handing out tickets yeah. six nights a week for two hours a night in Times Square. And trust me, when you're doing that and it's, you know, six degrees outside and freezing and raining and everything else, it ain't that fun. Like the internet for as long as it remains free or whatever level of freedom we have right now on the internet, which is obviously, you know, tenable at best. Um, you can put stuff out there. Anyone can put stuff out there. Anyone can do what I do, do what you guys do, you know, do prank videos, whatever, unbox stuff, play video games, whatever you want to do. Like if you have something unique to say and some interesting way to say it, like you have a chance to mm -hmm. make a very cool career. That's probably the question I get more than anything else when I go to college. And it's sort of weird because it's like college kids, kind of want to do what we're doing right now, which is great at some level. And if, if you've got something to say, you should say it for sure. I don't know that a society can last only on people just talking about stuff all the time, which is also why I'm interested in building things and not just talking about things. So <clears throat> I, re I read your book and I thought it was, you know, there were some interesting things in it. Um, can you just kind of go for, for our audience, tell us a little bit about your coming out story? Because I, I found that to be pretty compelling. Yeah, is this my is political coming out? Which coming out are we talking about here? The political <laughs> well, coming out? No, we're, we're talking more about, well, I guess that's sort of a political coming out as well, but um, talking more about, you know, coming into your own, into your sexuality. Yeah. 
You know, it's funny because people ask me about this and it's like, I get it's it's a thing, right? Because everyone's obsessed with identity. If, if you're black, you got to talk about being black. If you're gay, you got to talk about being gay. If you're trans, you got to talk about being trans. And if you got a limp, you got to talk about that. Like that, we've become obsessed with these things. In many ways, it really just happens to be a, a small part of me. But the reason that I wrote about it in the book was sort of that I want to kind of I wanted to kind of put it behind me in a certain respect, like talking about that process. But look, I would say this about coming out in general, and I think you can be closeted about a lot of things. That's why I wrote about it this way in the book. You can be closeted about your sexuality. You could be closeted about some family secret you have. You could be closeted about your political beliefs. So that's the link that I was trying to make between traditionally being what we think of as closeted and then closeted politically, which really in many ways is what is what put me on the map that I was, you know, I was a lefty going, hey, guys, there's something wrong here. But in terms of the, the sexuality stuff, um, you know, I, I people say to me, I don't act gay, right? Like, they, I, I don't act gay. So nobody thought I was gay. People think, oh, you're, you're only gay if you're, uh, you know, you're dancing on Broadway or something like that. And I was just never into that sort of thing. So I didn't feel gay in a certain regard, which kind of made it easy to be closeted. Like, I like things that you know, straight guys, let's say, like, like basketball and video games and things like that. So I was just sort of almost like closeted by default in a weird way. And then at some point, I think this is really the point, at some point, if you're not giving your full self to the world, if you're not, if you're an artist and you're just like, I'm not going to use the color blue, I'm just not going to use my full set, the full set of things that I think and feel and all that, your life will not be fully actualized. And that's what I realized. You know, you start lying to people, you're, you just aren't fully who you are supposed to be. So I really wrote about it just because it was like, I want to show people whatever it is that's in you. It's like, you got you to gotta use it, you got to own it, and then you can do some pretty extraordinary things, I think. I, I, it's interesting the way you frame that because you, you kind of tried to de-emphasize it when you started, just pointing right. out like, hey, I don't want identity to be... Uh, the big thing that people think of me as. And I think this is a trend actually among gay conservatives. Uh, yeah. You know, there's another pundit, uh, uh, Guy Benson, who came yep. out in his own book uh, that he wrote alongside Mary Catherine Ham. And when he came out, he came out in a footnote in the book. He didn't even put yeah. it in the text of the of yeah. the body of the story. He was like, no, I'll just, I'll just scribble it into a footnote and we'll move on. And of course it caught some attention. Uh, yeah. But I, I think it's interesting. Talk about that. Why, why de-emphasize it? Why suggest that um, personal identity should not be overemphasized in these conversations. But, but before you answer that, yeah. in the beginning, it sounded like you de-emphasized it. And then you said, you've got to own it. And you've got to give your full self. Yeah. So to me, it seemed like those two things were in conflict. So is, is it that you have to own it and it's part of your full self? Or is it something that you just put behind you? Uh, I'm well, a little... That's a great point. That's a great point. You have to own it. When I mean own it, I don't mean you don't, You have to flaunt it everywhere. You, I suppose you can if you want. But by own it, I mean like if you if you feel something, if you are something, you have to own that, meaning you, you can't struggle with that for your whole life. Because if you, if you are not in your full self all the time, you, you will you will break down. It's just how it is. You cannot live in that kind of conflict. And I, I was depressed. And, you know, I was doing drugs and other stuff that I'm not proud of in retrospect and all that kind of stuff. To the broader point of uh, de-emphasizing it, uh, and obviously that's how Guy went about doing it in his book, and we've talked about it many times. And some of the other sort of primetime, let's say, uh, gay conservatives, you know, Peter Thiel and Rick Grinnell, who were both friends of mine. It's like when, when we hang out, we're not like just sitting there talking about being gay. We're sitting there, and talk, <laughs> we're sitting there and talking about the same stuff you guys are talking uh -huh. about, and it's like, well, we happen to be gay. Uh -huh. So, I, I, to me, it's just if some, if you guys want to talk about it, or when when I go to colleges and kids want to talk about it or whatever it is, it's right. like I, I'll gladly talk about it. You know, I, I've been with my husband for about eleven years, which is like thirty straight years. People find that sort of amazing. <laughs> um, you know. Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm happy to talk about it in that <laughs> regard. But I would say because, you know, because the left uses identity as the great marker of society. That's what I was saying before. Like, if you are a black man, you must think this way. If you are a gay person, you must think this way. So in a weird way, I would say 
perhaps our rejection of that is maybe a little emphasized, maybe it's a little bit on steroids, because I don't want to do what they do. I, I, don't, want, I don't want any part of that. The, the things that I believe politically or philosophically or religiously or whatever else, uh, which I lay out, by the way, they're all in the book, it's like, those things have very little, not nothing, but they have very little to do with being gay, but I'm much more interested in those things than someone who happens to be gay or happens to be Asian or happens to be a lesbian. I know you've talked about this before, but if you could summarize for us this transition for you from, from being a man of the left to being much more iconoclastic, associated in many regards with the right, how does that transition take place? Yeah, well, first off, I should tell you, I don't mind being called part of the right at this point. I, I think there's something so broadly interesting happening on the right. I think there's such a, a wide tent right now of, say, more libertarian people. That's where I would include myself, more traditional religious conservatives. I see, you know, there's Trump people. There's sort of regular conservatives. There's something very cool. There's a lot of disaffected liberals kind of moving rightward. So the thing on the right is just super interesting to me because there's ability to agree to disagree. There's honest discussion about like where do rights come from and, and how are we gonna move this country forward? And there's like some really cool stuff happening on the right. On the left, it's just become scorched earth. It's like, you're a socialist, you're one of us, you believe in identity politics or you're out and we're gonna destroy you. So there's a huge movement happening here. Sometimes it can be hard to quantify because you know between algorithms and the way big tech is manipulating us and mainstream media, you know, calling half the country racist and now diseased all the time, it can be a little a little hard to see. But I really think something cool is happening. As far as the the shift for me, you know, it's interesting because I was a lefty. I was a Bernie supporter in twenty. Uh, what was that originally in twenty sixteen? Um, you can see it. Uh, I did not vote for Trump first time around. Um, it's funny, people will find videos of me supporting Bernie and they'll be like, see, what a hypocrite. And I'm like, no, that, that's the point. I, I woke up after that, right? Um, but really what was happening was everyone that I was surrounded by on the left, and I was on the Young Turks at the time, was just endlessly screaming that everybody else was a racist and a bigot and a homophobe and all the stuff that you know we all get called now. And at one point, it just stopped working. Like the math equation did not work for me. It was just like, this is way too easy. This cannot be right. First off, I don't think you guys are that bright or thoughtful or interesting, but it's like the people that you're always railing against, they can't be as evil. It just can't be that they're so blind and you are so wise. It doesn't work. Um, and then, you know, as I started talking about that, suddenly there were an awful lot of people that were like, Dave, I'm kind of seeing that too. Something's not right here. And then I started talking about the difference between being a leftist and, you know, a classically, a classical liberal and just more and more people kind of started seeing that. And then really the, the next step was I started talking to some of these scary conservatives, these people that I had been told were bigots and racists, like, you know, Ben Shapiro and Larry Elder and Dennis Prager and Glenn Beck and Tucker Carlson. And I found them to be thoughtful and interesting and decent. And although I had some and still have some political disagreements with them, it's like, we all wanna live in the same country. That's what I'm talking about with this new thing on the right. It's like, we can, we actually want to live in a country with some disagreement with some people that are different from us. They don't. And, and that is why I will keep going to where there is room to build things rather than the place where there's just uh, scorched earth and nothing left. So I, I, man, I, there's a lot that, uh, you know, I have about 20 questions, particularly <laughs> deep diving into the, uh, into the book. And as someone on the left, I can tell you when I get together with my black friends that we don't just talk about being black the whole time. So I think you're, <laughs> you're a little wrong about that. Uh, that's not what the left does. But um, I watched an interview with, with your friend, Ben Shapiro, uh, and a guy named Yoram Hazoni. Yeah. Uh, where Hazoni says that the flaw with classical liberal doctrine is a belief in universal truths that span all societies and times and ignores the complexity of diverse countries and nations within nations. What's your response to that as a classical classical liberal? Yeah, I think he's basically right. And I've, I've been on his podcast discussing that. And that was a tough realization for me to come to. You know, there there is a weakness to liberalism, to traditional liberalism, which in a weird way is also the strength of liberalism. Liberalism puts tolerance sort of at the top of the hierarchy, meaning we should be tolerant of everything. Now, of course, the problem there is the paradox of tolerance, which is if you are tolerant of intolerance, 
you may let a lot of really bad ideas in. And I think that that's what's happened on the modern left. That's what's happened with the progressives. They saw sort of the tolerance of sort of mainstream liberals, mainstream Democrats, and they went in there and they sort of destroyed the whole thing, which is why, in my opinion, the, the modern Democratic Party has become so radically left. They didn't They didn't really consider themselves Democrats. I don't think AOC or Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, the squad crew, I don't think they really consider themselves Democrats. They're socialists, which they sort of admit now. You know, they used to say they were democratic socialists. Now they're kind of socialists. But they use the Democratic Party. They use liberalism as their way into the system. I, I, I usually give a reference from the original Alien movie. They're sort of gestating in the stomach of this thing, of the Democratic Party, and now they've burst forth. And, and by the way, you have to kind of admire the way they use the host here. I mean, they really destroyed the entire Democratic Party. You may not like what they've done. You may. I, I don't like what they've done. But I sort of admire the totality of the way that they did it. But to uh, Yoram's broader point, uh, that liberalism needs something beneath it. I think the, the Enlightenment liberals, most of the people that are considered the decent liberals of today, so let's say uh, Bill Maher, Sam Harris, the Barry Weiss types, the people who aren't leftists but are just sort of regular liberals, what they're missing, in my opinion, is something outside of ourselves, that we need something, in most cases I would call it God or some level of organized religion, which is exactly organized belief, let's at least say, which is exactly what our founders believed in. Our founders said we have God-given rights and we're writing man-made documents, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, to protect those rights, but we did not make you free. And that's a really beautiful idea. And I think liberals sort of think, oh, we just using logic and reason and humanity, we can just come up with sort of rules for society that will always sort of work and always sort of keep people decent. And it's just extremely obvious right now in 2021 America, it just doesn't work. And last point on that, he was talking about multicultural societies that it's much more difficult. And that just actually is true. That's why the U.S. is in such a weird spot right now. We've done something really well for 200 plus years about bringing all sorts of people from all over the world here and giving everyone opportunity. And that doesn't have mean- Have we done that for 200 years? Are you yeah, sure about have. that? We have. 200, well, 200 years really, we've been given everybody rights? Wait, wait, you didn't, you didn't get me get, let me get to the next sentence. Okay, it doesn't okay. mean, we, it doesn't mean ahead, we've always ahead. done it. It doesn't mean we've, we've always done it perfectly. And of course we had slavery. Women couldn't vote. Gay people couldn't get married. We, we had these things that we have worked through to give equality to everybody. Now what we're doing is rejiggering it in a way so that if you are of this group, you should get more. If you are of this group, you should get punished. That's actually anti-liberalism and it's being ushered in by the lefties. We're seeing some of this. We, we saw kind of an expression of what you're talking about, where like the left is having these this infighting where tolerance as a principle is being exploited. Uh, this week, there was this ACLU tweet that had Ruth Bader Ginsburg, some quote where she was yeah, supporting yeah. women. And, she, you know, all of the instances of the word women were replaced uh, in the tweet. Uh, they were bracketed and the word person was put in there as if women was a category that, you know, it would be too intolerant to just say women. Uh, the ACLU's uh, director has come out and since apologized for that. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg hasn't been dead that long, and maybe they think that they can't they can't alter it quite that quickly. Uh, but clearly, there's this infighting uh, on the left about what does tolerance mean and how do we change the language and and what are the rules of the road going forward. Well, well, the reason for that is that the way the left operates now, it's a movement of destruction, not creation. So, you know, all, they always want more money to do more projects, even though they constantly tell you how corrupt and evil the government is. If it was only their people in charge, and if their people only had enough power, and if their people only had enough money, things would be good. That's just not how human nature works. Um, so, you know, it's interesting on the, on the Ruth Bader Ginsburg part, it's like, you know, Barack Obama ran the first time he was running for president. It's not that long ago, 2008. Uh, he was against gay marriage. Now, if we are to believe that obviously gay marriage is right and just and everything else, well, I suppose Barack Obama was a homophobe back then. And the problem that the progressives will always have is that because they're always progressing, 
you know, progressing just for the sake of progressing doesn't necessarily make sense. If you told me you were progressing to something, so you're progressing to equality, so that everyone is treated equally under the law, which we've done in the United States, well, that's a worthy cause. That is old liberalism. Now they're just saying, oh, we're progressing. We just want more and more. We want to do things with society. We want to build back better. We want the Green New Deal. We just want these things, and we're going to keep progressing. The problem is that the progressives of 2040, 20 years from now, I guarantee you, will be burning down the Obama library in Chicago that I think is being built right now because the progressives of 2040 will say that backwards Barack Obama guy who, who was against gay marriage and did drone strikes all over the Middle East and blah, 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 blah. So everyone has to be careful with, uh, with what they ask for right now because we are ushering in something deeply intolerant I, in I the know, name of tolerance. I know Jason wants to jump here, but I just want to make yeah. one point on that, which is that I, I do suspect, I don't know if your prediction will come true. We should go back, we'll come back in 2040 if we're all still alive and check out. <laughs> I will be here. But, but uh, this, um, this idea, I don't know. I think that the left by and large has retconned a lot of um, historical figures depending on their usefulness at any given time. So like, you know, Obama's drone strikes or Obama's opposition to gay marriage may not actually be a part of the conversation at all. We saw, we see it with Cesar Chavez, of course, when we talk about the labor movement and the, and nobody ever, of course, discusses his um, beating down illegal immigrants on our Southern border. That never comes up. It's just, you know, he's a great labor champion, uh, you know, Martin Luther King and, and uh, fighting for equality of opportunity and not judging people based on their identities. Um, that's again, a lot of this just gets retconned out. Like people get turned into different characters than they were in real life. So not, I don't know, maybe they don't burn down the, uh, the Obama library, but there, there could well, be maybe, some radical. Maybe you're right. Maybe they don't burn it down. I actually do think that is a possibility and I'll gladly do this with you 19 years from now. Um, but even if you look at the way they talk about Martin Luther King Jr. Now, it's not the way that we all talked about Martin Luther King Jr. five or 10 years ago, even when it was like, he was universally regarded as the person that wanted his children not to be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content right. of their character, that, oh, this was the that this was the ultimate American ideal. That's not exactly what they're saying anymore because they're the ones, the lefties are the ones that are saying, no, we should always be racializing everything. That's very counter to his message. Yeah, I, I think you guys, we could do a whole thing about Martin Luther King. I teach African-American studies and I think you guys are actually doing exactly what it is that you say that others are doing. If you understand Martin Luther King and his connection to socialism and many other things, but we could talk about that another day. I wanna dive into your book. Um, so you claim that life begins at conception, but then say abortion should be legal. Wouldn't that intentionally ending a life be a homicide? So I'm glad you asked me about this. It's been on my mind because I've had a couple other people ask me about abortion lately. And obviously, you know, there was the abortion law right. in Texas that was passed, the six-week situation. And now the Democrats basically passed a, a really, really radical situation on the other side. I think 218 to 1 saying that a woman, a woman can have an abortion at any point during pregnancy, which I think any sane person would agree that just because you want to have an abortion at eight months, that that doesn't make sense. Um, I found the abortion segment of the book, which is about two pages, to be the most complex to write. It was the only part of the book that I actually uh, seeked counsel from a couple of different people. Um, look, the simple truth is, if, you, if life begins somewhere, if, if we are to believe that life begins somewhere, which obviously it begins somewhere, then it has to be when the sperm meets the egg, right? And I'm, we're in the midst of surrogacy right now. So I'm intimately uh, involved in some of this knowledge right now of the sperm meets the egg, you have a blastocyst for a few days, you have an embryo. By the way, they know the gender within you know three days basically now with genetic testing. So we're not even allowed to talk about who's male and who's female. Uh, and yet you can find that out within you know a couple days of the, the sperm meeting the egg. I, that, that that is the beginning of life because there has to be a beginning. So you can't, so that's sure. the moment. I, I, I completely acknowledge that. The, the begrudging pro-choice position that I take in the book is that in a pluralistic society, we've got about 350 million people in this country from all walks of life, that you want to give as much flexibility as possible for people to do what they think is right without government involvement. And this becomes very complex because then is the government there to protect the woman or is the government there to protect you know, the, the, the potential child, the embryo, the fetus, et cetera? So my position is 12 weeks, um, that's three months in essence, 
Uh, to me, that's plenty of time to, to make a really awful decision. I would grant you this. I would much prefer that at that point, people carry the baby to term and let it be adopted, whatever it might be. But this is also where I just don't want the government involved, which is ironically the classically liberal position. It's thought of more as, say, a libertarian position right now. Um, but, you know, one of the things I've debated abortion with totally pro-life guys like Shapiro and Prager and Glenn Beck. Um, and it's like their arguments are quite good, obviously, and most pro-life people can make a good argument. One of the, the things that's shifted me, though, is not their arguments. It's the fact that the left has gone so radical with this, that they're literally talking about post-birth abortions, eight-month abortions. Like, we all know that's wrong. So the only reason I take the 12-week position and then with some caveats for the health of the mother, and if, if you know, the child is going to have a true life-altering disease that will allow it never to become fully actualized. I just think in a society, in a pluralistic society, you've got to give some flexibility. And by the way, a lot of pro-life people will kind of admit that on the DL. They will privately say, you know, there are some situations involving rape, involving health, uh, you know, a few other things where they'll privately admit it, but they publicly won't. So it's just, mm -hmm. it's just one of the messy ones that we don't do well as, as a country in discussing. Yeah, it, uh, it's, you know, what's interesting about your position is I've, this is a rare position to to voice. I've heard this before, but very rarely, which is, yes, I'm acknowledging that a life is being extinguished, but here's why I'm OK with it in, in limited circumstances or whatever, sort of in your case, 12 weeks. Um, uh, you know, you, you mentioned kind of the exceptions and there's and, and I think a lot of people sort of reflexively say, yeah, rape, incest, life of the mother. Those are the the things where most people say, yeah, we shouldn't. Uh, we shouldn't bar people from aborting in those circumstances. But on the other hand, you know, if you really want to get uh, go for a trip, watch videos of people of babies who were born as a product of rape, who are now adults. No, I know who who, who literally express like undying. And I'm not trying to use that term flippantly gratitude yeah. uh, to their mother uh, for taking them to term. It is it is just one of those things where you watch and you go, man, what a it's it ties your your stomach into knots thinking about this and then well, uh, and then simultaneously being like wow look at the bravery of that mother and then look at the immense gratitude in the eyes of that of that now adult or that child well it's one of those things it's like so most of most people i think you're right do think that in the case of rape especially if you found out very early very early so let's say it's literally 6 weeks in right so in essence you have a you know a clump of cells and i'm not being flippant either when I say that. I think most people, most even pro-life people would privately say, okay, you can make the decision for yourself. Some people wouldn't. Some people would have their own religious beliefs, would carry the baby to term. And then yes, we've seen, we've all seen those videos of these people and they're wonderful people often. And it's, it's great that they're there. There's also a logical inconsistency with the argument because it's like, well, just because someone was raped, does that give the rape victim the right to murder if you then believe that abortion is murder? So it's one of these things where we could obviously talk about this for hours and hours and hours. Right. And I'm, tr I'm right. trying, what I tried to do in the book was give, you know, within a couple pages, give a very, very nuanced perspective um, that, that took into account that we have this huge country with so many different people from religious backgrounds, philosophical backgrounds, uh, cultural backgrounds that are all so different. What can a society do to accommodate as many of those ideas as possible. I don't yeah. think there's a perfect answer here. That that really is the truth. All right, let, uh, yeah. let's take a quick break here and we'll come back with more with Dave Rubin in just a moment. Uh, but first, I just got to acknowledge how good Jason looks today in that grunt style t-shirt. Just like really bringing his A game today. Absolutely. And, uh, and I've got mine now, finally, here. You can see a little yeah, fish right yeah. here. Yours isn't yeah. as good as mine. And I want you guys, I know you guys can't see this. I think my microphone is in the way, but it says descent is the highest form of patriotism. Now, a lot of people don't realize that that quote is actually from Howard Zinn, a leftist. Um, it, people misattribute it oftentimes to Thomas Jefferson, but I, I love this shirt. I love the, the quote. Like I said, it fits my dad bod. Well, I won't say, I don't have a dad bod. I have a father figure, uh, <laughs> but it fits very well. Uh, uh, on me and I, and I'm liking yours too. You, we got to get Dave one. 
It's got, I got a colorful fish on the back too. It's kind of awesome. Uh, Listen, I'd be happy to show off my father figure at any point. You hit 45 and then there's just this extra like four pounds on the stomach that just, Um, So if you're interested, if you're interested, let me just share about these uh, great veterans. There's like over 200 veterans who are employed by Grunt Style. Uh, They they employ hundreds of Americans and they make awesome apparel just like this. Uh, And you can go to their website. That's just gruntstyle.com and enter the promo code S-T-N, that's Save the Nation, S-T-N. At checkout, you'll get 10% off of your order. And Jason, uh, this is a no-brainer. I get, we got to get some hoodies. We've been talking about hoodies. We got to do Absolutely. that now. Well, I have one. I have one hoodie. I'll, I'll be rocking that probably on Friday. Actually, I have to clean it because I was just working out in it before I got here. So that's why I'm a little out of breath. Uh, but I'm definitely excited uh, to get to the, you know, to some of the other issues in in Dave's book that I, you know, that I read and I thought it was, you know, definitely discussion worthy. So I'm excited. Thank you to Grunt Style uh, for giving us this, this drip here. And we, you know, we're very appreciative of that. Yes, we are. Go ahead, Jason. You have more Um, questions, man. So I've got a ton, but uh, so you describe yourself as a classical liberal. um, And as such, you're against, I'm assuming mandating masks and vaccines uh, even if they can be effective in pr- protecting public health, because that would interfere with personal liberties of what to do with your body and life. Yet in your book, you oppose the legalization of Schedule One drugs because addiction hurts communities. Why are you willing to sacrifice the civil liberties uh, in, some, in one case uh, for the public good, but not in the other? Well, so this gets to sort of what's the difference between a classical liberal and a libertarian, because a lot of times when I'm talking about individual rights, people will just say, well, well you're just a libertarian. You're, you're saying you're a classical liberal, but you're just a libertarian. I don't mind being called a libertarian, actually. I think that a libertarian with sort of some guardrails on society, a libertarian who's willing to say there's a little more that the government has to do to make sure the car doesn't go off the road, that in essence is what I would say a classical liberal is. So you're totally right on the first part. I am not for vaccine mandates. I am not for mask mandates. I think you should do what is right for you and your family and your local community. And by the way, if you're a restaurateur or you own a business and you want people to come in and wear masks, that's your choice. And it's, by, it's also their choice if they don't want to go in and want to go somewhere else. I think in terms of vaccines, the idea that out of nowhere, we're suddenly demanding that everyone be jabbed and they have to be jabbed again and another booster shot. And we got to now give it to six-year-olds and we got three-year-olds on planes with masks. We are just watching the mass um, d- mass destruction of individual choice. It's happening in front of our eyes. We went from two weeks to flatten the curve to a year and a half later, the, the governor of New York, who nobody voted for, you know, because she took over for Cuomo, is basically firing something like 80,000 healthcare workers because they don't want to get vaccinated. So two weeks to flatten the curve to now firing nurses in the name of health. So the, the, the heart of your question is how do you balance individual choice and responsibility with some capacity to live in a society with bad things? And that's why you need some level of government. I'm not a full anarchist. Uh, you know, I, I like talking to anarchists a lot. My, my favorite one is Michael Malice, who I think really explains, you know, why government should absolutely do nothing. He's a great explainer of it, but I'm just not there. So I would say you want as much, it's sort of like the abortion discussion we just have, had. You want as much flexibility as possible for people to do the right things for themselves. Right. So when I talk about the drug part, it's like, yeah, I'm for legalizing marijuana. I'm not for mandating that everyone smokes it. I'm for legalizing uh, most psychedelics. But then there's another class of drugs, basically, that are so highly addictive. We all know about, I'm sure you guys cover the, the fentanyl problem we have in the United States, the heroin problem. I was just in New York City, the amount of people that you see on the streets that are just laying there that are obviously on drugs, you go to San Francisco, I mean, go to most progressive cities, that you just unfortunately have to balance people's ability to make choices for themselves with some level of public good. And yeah. it's messy and it's yeah. a little, so, you know, we could we could sit here with the list of 20 drugs and debate which ones. Okay, should cocaine be illegal and we're going to make crack illegal or whatever it might be, we can do that. But, but in essence, it's the same answer to the abortion thing, which is that there's an awful lot of people here and you have to just balance. Well, there's one way to think about and the there's, government. Yeah. There's one way to well, think about this that I, that I do, guys, when I, when I think about drugs in particular, 
It's like anything that robs you of your liberties, I'm basically reflexively opposed to. And in the case of drugs like fentanyl, that clearly robs an individual of their ability to, to lead a life of liberty. I mean, it, it's one of paralyzing addiction uh, and, and sadness. And it's the kind of thing that, you know, that I'm on guard for. So when we think about this liberty question, we often, I think, make it like, oh, it's just about what the government can do to us or versus what it can't. But I honestly think that if you're going to be truly libertarian instinctively, you have to widen the lens to include corporate America and the way it robs us of our liberties and constrains our ability to do things uh, and use our freedom to even find out information. You have to think clearly about drugs and the way that they uh, can enslave people to them and rob them of their liberties. Um, I think it is good to have a liberty impulse, but you should apply it to all facets of life and not just the government, which, of course, deserves so here, a lot a, of our scrutiny. Here's the thing, Vince and Dave. Like... The classical liberal position is that individual liberty is paramount and there is nothing more that has to do with your own liberties and freedoms is what to do with your own body. So if you are going to say that I can't ingest whatever it is in my body, I think the classical liberal position would be, where does it stop? Can I not drink a, a, a big gulp? Because you know, it may harm my body and they say sugar is addictive. Where, where does this actually stop? And I think that's the classical liberal position. So my question to Dave is really about what, how he identifies as a classical liberal or, or even a libertarian when you're saying that there should be these strict guardrails. And then again, when we're talking about ingesting drugs, that's what I'm putting into my own body. But when we're talking about COVID, that is something that could affect the people around me. So that's a little bit different. And, and so I'm trying to understand how it is you marry those things. And, and another question that I have on top of that is you mentioned libertarianism. Uh, why is it that you supported Donald Trump in 2020 instead of Joe Jorgensen? Because it sounds to me like your views align closer to Jorgensen than to Donald Trump. Yeah, so I'll do the Jorgensen uh, Trump one quick and then we'll get to the drug stuff. I had her on the show. I actually thought she was a fairly decent but not great explainer of libertarian ideas. I didn't think she was a great candidate by any stretch. I think she was a little, got a little lost in some of the social justice stuff. And the reason, the main reason that I supported Trump was I think Trump was as close to a libertarian president as we're going to get in modern times. Obviously not a libertarian, but he did cut taxes. He did cut regulation. He did end wars. Uh, you know, he, he was doing a lot of stuff in the Middle East. We weren't starting new wars. He was do, trying to give as much power to the states as possible related to COVID and virtually everything else. So those were enough libertarian ideas that I was comfortable voting for him. Uh, by the way, I would say that's very similar to, you know, a guy like Rand Paul, who I like a lot, who obviously is a libertarian, became Trump one of Trump's biggest surrogates in the Senate. So that, that would explain that part. On the other part, I think I already explained why the classically liberal position is not just about individual rights. It's also understanding that we live in a society. And in this case, when, when you mentioned, well, COVID, what you do about COVID could affect other people. Look, if I had a crack den next door to me or a house that was making meth next door to me, that would be affecting me, right? Like there would be more people there would, uh, that were doing shady things. There would be more crime. It wouldn't be that comfortable to walk by the house. It would affect the house prices, et cetera, et cetera. So I see those things as not completely disconnected. All right, let's, uh, let's finish up with the great Dave Rubin here in just a moment. But first, uh, once again, a thank you to our friends over at GoldCo. Now, Dave Rubin, I, I want to ask a little bit, you know, I, I, we started the interview, I was talking about sort of your move from the left to the right. Um, do you still have any relationship with the guys over at the Young Turks where you spend some time? <laughs> well, I know that they do videos about me all the time. I don't think I've ever done one video about them. I, you know, the irony is that, you know, people ask me about this a lot. You know, there were several people there. Uh, who aren't even worth naming because I, I don't get into, I try to avoid these fights on the internet. Yeah. People who go after me relentlessly now that were invited to my wedding, which was like eight months after I left. Um, so the, I know they've done some really awful slanderous videos and, and are bizarrely obsessed with me. Um, but I try to be above the fray. And also look, when, when it comes to public debate, I have some rules and I'm not here to just burn everything down. So if, if you fight with people that have no rules, nothing good is gonna come of it. 
Um, so I'd be happy to debate ideas with anyone that, you know, is going to treat me with mutual respect and all of those things. But if, you're, if your goal is just, in essence, as I said at the beginning of this, like sort of scorched earth, it's our way or the highway, we're going to lie relentlessly about you and everything else, like, I'm just not that interested in that. I know some people are. It's just not something that interests me. Yeah. Do you, do you think what they're doing is like kind of like cloud chasing, like trying to elicit a reaction out of you in order to get an internet fight going and attract more attention? Is that kind yeah, of what you probably. expect? On it, I mean, totally honestly, I have no idea really what they're doing. I, I never watch the videos. I never gotcha. see any of them. I never see any of them go viral. I, I think they've, you know, they, they've clearly peaked years ago and are on their way out. But yeah, like, what do you do in the YouTube game if you want clicks? Like, if you want clicks, you find people who are getting clicks and you attack them. Like, that's just part of the algorithmic game. It's partly why we're in such a bad political space at the moment. Right. Because everyone is chasing views and clicks. And once you do that, it's like, if you find somebody who you agree with on 90% of the stuff, but you can find that 10% to turn on them, and then you know that you're going to get a lot of clicks and attention off that and blah, blah, blah. It's like, you're going to do that. I try not to do it here. It's why, you know, even if you watch my show, you know, I'll go after politicians all the time. And I go after some of the big media people, meaning, you know, CNN, when they really lie about stuff. I never, I don't think I've ever, I, I could be wrong, but uh, I don't think I've ever really gone after just like the other internet people in my space. It's like, all right, you're doing something. I'm doing something. That's all right. Yeah. Um, J Jason, I, so, I go ahead, Jason. I know you have other questions. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, I have a lot of questions. Um, yeah. <laughs> and actually, you know, I, I, I did have a question about uh, you mentioned in your book uh, how your 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 moment where you wanted to leave T TRT was a situation where they were criticizing David Webb. And I, and I know David Webb. He's a, he's a nice guy. Yeah. Um, I, I disagree with him, but, you know, he's definitely a, a nice individual. Um, but you also say that uh, progressives are pretending to be colorblind, but like a page earlier, you say that they're obsessed with immutable skin characteristics or in, immutable characteristics like skin color. So are they pretending to be colorblind or are they loudly talking about race? Because those two things don't seem no, to go together. They completely go together. They're How? obsessed they're, because they're obsessed with race while pretending that everyone else is obsessed with race. So in other words, the, the reason I mentioned the, the David Webb story in the book, David, I'll just briefly uh, recap it for those that haven't read it. I was on air at the Young Turks um, and they were, I think David was hosting a show on Fox News. He might've been guest hosting Hannity if I'm not mistaken, but he was on Fox News. Mm -hmm. And he's David, who I'm good friends with because I had a show on Sirius XM for years. I met him in the hallway one day. I was on the left at the time, he was on the right but I would go on his show once a week. We'd debate stuff, and then we'd go downstairs to Del Frisco's and have a steak and have some whiskey, and we became good friends, and we're good friends many years later. So we're watching this video of him on Fox, and suddenly all of these people who call everyone else racist, who say that they're the anti-racist, they don't care about skin color, they don't care about sexuality, they don't care about gender, they're for diversity, they're open and tolerant, they see this black guy saying some stuff that they don't like, and they're calling him an Uncle Tom and a whole bunch of awful stuff. And because I know David personally, and I know he is a good man, I don't agree with him on everything, but I know he's a forthright man who says what he believes, takes positions that are, that are deeply unpopular to take as a black man, but does it and fights for what he believes, and I know what a good man he is, it was just so starkly obvious to me at that moment who the racists were. The racists were not David Webb. The racists were the people who say that they're the anti-racists, but then when a black man says something they don't like, they get to call him a sellout and an Uncle Tom and a bunch of stuff that's worse than that. That actually is sort of the neo, I would say the new modern racism of the left. So they pretend that they're not racist while actually they're the ones that are pushing racism on everything, which by the way, we're seeing it every facet of society right now. Well, here's the thing. I, I, I think that, well, I guess we have a different understanding of what colorblind means. Colorblind means that they don't see race and I'm saying that they do see race. Uh, I think one of the, the arguments would be that colorblindness, uh, that the, the, the right oftentimes talks about having a colorblind society. The left actually doesn't talk about that because they don't think the problem is recognition of race. It's what you do when you recognize race, which is to 
discriminate against people or to think of them as being less intelligent or to think of them as being less than for some reason. It's not the recognition of race that is the problem. But at any rate, well, that goes slightly to the difference between, you know, a system being racist versus just individual racists. There, there's always right. going to be a certain amount of people that don't like people because of the color of their skin or they have a different religion or a different sexuality or some of that stuff. That's, that's human nature and it's always going to exist. The best thing that we can do is we want to teach people that those are bad ideas. You want to show people that sure. we're all made of the same stuff and, and you don't have to agree with someone but they're not automatically evil or bad because of some sort of immutable characteristic. Of course, right. I can get on board that. I can say that since I've now, let's say, shifted to the right or whatever you want to call it, every single conservative event that I have ever been to, libertarian event that I have ever been to, I have never, never once, period, heard anyone say anything racist or, or homophobic or anything else. That's not to say that there aren't individual people in those crowds at those events that hold some belief like that. But I don't see any mainstream person on the right that wants to have different laws uh, be based on color of skin, uh, that wants even, even gay marriage. Look how quickly that one just, they moved on that one. It's, it's over now. Trump mm -hmm. ran pro-gay marriage as a first-term president, first time ever in American history. Okay, so well, I, I think we can talk about other LGBT groups. I, I do agree that we have moved on from uh, you know, gay marriage, but you know, of course, uh, as Dave Chappelle would say, the T's, you know, haven't necessarily gotten the same kind of recognition, have been banned from the military. And you believing in individual rights, I would assume that you'd be with, you know, allowing for those people to serve their country and, and to have the, the same opportunities as everyone else, correct? Of course, as long as they can perform whatever the, the physical right. and mental tests are to the same level as everyone else, of course they should be. But, okay. but I would also leave military matters to the military right. as, a gen, as a general rule. But yeah, if you can do, if you're a female who transitions to male and then wants to be in the male, the male barracks and you want to be on the front lines, you we shouldn't be lowering whatever those tests are mentally or physically, as long as you can do it, sure. Okay, so Vincent, I know you want to jump in here, but I have one more question I want to ask. By all means, go for it. Um, and that is, <clears throat> so you told the story, you tell these you give some anecdotes at the beginning of your book. Um, and one of them is of a professor that I, I genuinely kind of felt for as someone who's in academia, uh, Professor Brett Weinstein uh, from Evergreen State University, I believe. That's in Oregon, I believe. Yep. Uh, Washington, um, yeah. And to, or Washington, sorry. Um, yeah. To show the dangers of left-wing mobs. But you didn't tell the story of Professor uh, Kinyaga Yamita Taylor uh, of Princeton, Professor Tommy Curry of Texas A&M, Professor Johnny Eric Williams of Trinity College, Professor Dana Cloud of Syracuse, or there's the name you may know, Dr. Jason Nichols of the University of Maryland, all of whom have received violent threats from right-wing mobs. So my question is, why were you selective in talking about mob mentality and threats and violence and trying to, uh, you know, limit academic speech and academic freedom and not tell the other side of it, because it seems to me like you're trying to bring balance and debate and all those kinds of things, but you didn't do that in the book. You only focused on people like Brett Weinstein and on one other, uh, I think it was a TA or, or uh, whose name is, uh, is Lindsay Shepard, yeah. yeah, but you didn't talk about all of the rest of these people who get the same threats, and you also go to a lot of events uh, hosted by, um, what is the name of the organization? Uh, uh, Turning Point might be. Turning Point, thing. thank you. Yeah. Well, hosted by Turning Point USA, who literally tries to limit academic speech by having a part on their website about, you know, professors who are left wing. Um, so my question is, you being a person who is open, and I really love the things, some of the things that you're saying in this interview is that we need to be open, we need to have these discussions. Uh, that's what Vince and I are here for. That's why we, you know, we try to bring guests from all over. That's why we have the discussions and the debates that we have. Also, looking at your YouTube, you don't really have a lot of debates with leftists. It seems like a lot of your 
guests are people you agree with or people on the right or right-wing populists. So I'm wondering why it is that you don't show that this is just part of our political discourse and the rot of our political discourse on both sides, rather uh, than just trying to make it seem like it's those crazy leftists. Right. All right. Well, first off, I, I don't agree with some of the premises there, so I'll, I'll try to clean up some of it. As far as the turning point thing, um, I don't know. I don't know exactly what you're referring to on their website, but I can tell you that out of the dozens, if not hundreds, of events that I've done at colleges for Turning Point, uh, often with Charlie Kirk or with Candace Owens or a mm -hmm. bunch of Brandon Tatum, a bunch of other people, um, they open up. We always. I think every event I've ever done with them. Uh, first off, anyone's allowed to come. Obviously, you don't have to yeah. just be on the right or conservative or anything. But when we do Q and A's, we always make a point of saying, if you disagree with us, come to the front of the line. Every single time, I try to do that at every event regardless of Turning Point or not. I've never seen anything on Turning Point's website or heard anything uh, where they've said, we don't want lefty professors at colleges. Now we can talk about indoctrination broadly at colleges. Are they do are, are universities doing the true job of educating and teaching kids how to think, not what to think? That's sort of a separate issue. But so I just, I don't know exactly what you're talking about on the Turning Point side. As for the, um, as for the part about, um, who I interview and that sort of thing. You know, I used to have more leftists on, for sure. I think one of the things that that really is a problem is that so many people on the left call everyone else racist and bigoted and, and all of it, that they're not willing. Why would you have a conversation with a racist and a bigot? Um, so when the New York Times, you know, basically implies that I'm a white supremacist or part of the alt-righters thing, that closes a lot of doors. So for years, I was always going on Twitter, inviting, you can find old tweets of mine, inviting long lists of leftists who, who would uh, not be not want to come on my show, would usually just ignore me, um, I would still be willing to have those conversations if they were willing to do it again in, in the spirit of mutual respect and everything else. It's just very hard to come by these days. But that being said, I'm actually much more interested in building things. And I would say what's happening on the right, the sort of populist right that's a little bit libertarian and a little bit more traditionally conservative and with some of the MAGA thing, that's very cool to me. Like that to me, if we're ever going to get out of this mess that America's in right now, it's going to go through that thing. So I like talking to people uh, that are part of that. Actually, later today, I have Blake Masters, who's running for Arizona Senate. He'll, he'll be right here in studio today. Um, and he, I would say, is part of that. J.D. Vance is part of that. So I'm interested in that. Um, but also, I would say, you know, I'm trying to do a little more on the tech side things like that, where you're going to find more people that are kind of into free market capitalism and into uh, the ideas that we can solve some of these things without government. That's just what I'm more interested in. I think I think that answered everything there. Oh, oh, and on the Brett front, um, well, I would have to know if all of those professors were literally chased off campus. It's one thing to get death yeah. threats or get, get some kind of threat, which of course I'm not for anybody, professor or student, getting directly threatened. I mean, I get the threats too, so these are not fun things. The Brett story was so interesting to me because here was a guy at a, at a lefty, arguably the most progressive school in the United States, uh, who had been a lefty the entire time, Bernie supporting lefty, who all he did was say one thing that they didn't like, and next thing he was literally being chased off campus. Not just so, not just saying bad things about him, literally being chased chased off campus. Not only yeah. him, but his wife as well. And now neither one of them work there. So I yeah. thought it was a particular unique story. But if you tell me that any of those people were chased off campuses by mobs, that they now no longer work at those schools, I would absolutely be interested in those stories. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, Professor Johnny Eric Williams, as I mentioned, of Trinity College had to flee the state because of the threats that he was getting. Uh, Kenyaga Yam Yamada uh, Taylor, uh, she had to cancel a book tour because of the threats that she was getting. Uh, so, I mean, a lot of people, and there are some of us like me who get death threats who, you know, I'm, I'm just gonna keep doing what I do. Well, that's um, all you can do. That's all you but, can do. But at the same time, I understand others who feel like they can't do what they have to do or, or actually feel threatened by those things and have to either stop either willingly on their own or maybe their colleagues feel threatened and their colleagues. I've had some of my colleagues tell me, you know, maybe you shouldn't do so much Fox News because you, we're getting death threats at the uh, getting death threats called into our office and all kinds of N-bombs dropped, you know, on our messages. 
so but, but if, you're I, getting, I get, if you're getting if you're getting death threats from people because you're on Fox News, aren't those lefties who are not happy with you being on Fox News? No, <laughs> no, They're those are right. MAGA people who are upset with me uh, having criticisms of Donald Trump. This is not, and this is what I'm trying to to express to you. And this is what Vince and I, and with Save the Nation, what we're trying to accomplish, and Neil Patel, what we're trying to accomplish is that is the rot of our political discourse. And I just want. I just thought that you are in a position as someone with a large audience to say, hey, maybe this is something that happens on the left. This is something that happens on the right. Let's actually try to come together and speak to one another. And I understand you're interested. Listen, I don't in know anyone that's done it more than me, honestly. I, I really don't. I, I don't know that anyone in the public space, let's say in the last five years, has done more in terms of let's talk these things out. Let's not be politically violent. Let's not try to do this situation of mutually assured destruction and everything else. And by the way, I, I don't, I have no doubt that you're telling me the truth and you and everyone gets hate. I, I believe me, I've seen the MAGA trolls too. You know, every now and again, if I've said something that goes against Trump, I see what those people do too. There's always going to be bad people. And now with algorithmically fueled bots and trolls and all of that stuff, it's always going to feel like if you take any position that's worth taking, you're going to get hit on one side or the other. Um, generally speaking, the reason that I focused on the on the Brett thing and, and Lindsay Shepard up, up at Wilfrid Laurier in Canada is because it's when when people on the right, I would say mainstream people on the right. So if you took a guy like Ben Shapiro, Ben Shapiro is basically telling you Ronald Reagan conservatism. That, that's pretty much what he's saying. When he goes to college events, they have to often spend thousands and thousands. I think Berkeley had to spend $200,000 to protect the event that he went to. You can send any lefty professor to any college and they usually don't uh, have to spend anything on security because generally speaking, people on the right are more tolerant of other people speaking. So you can have a lefty professor go to, or a lefty speaker or YouTuber go to a college and people on the right will be like, ah, he's going to talk. I'm not going to go. Or maybe they do a little counter protest outside. That's very different than when I show up to a school or when Ben shows up to a school or Dennis Prager, or again, people who are not racists or even flamethrowers, uh, people who are just offering some narrative that's outside of what most colleges are offering these days. Okay. And I, and I also, oh, Vince, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it's it's totally yeah. fine. I, I I'll let, why don't you finish up with Dave here because Dave uh, Dave's been generous with his time. I know he's got another appointment to keep here. Yeah, Dave. Uh, first of all, I thank got you for numbered on Fox in a minute. I I got to sit with the, those four chicks and see what happens. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and and the the one token liberal woman. Yeah. Um, so in your book, you say that America uh, is not an imperialist country. And, and again, I, there's so much that we have to have you back on sometime Anytime. soon because I didn't, there's a lot that I would like to challenge that you stated, but right now I just want people to hear your position. Um, in your book, you say that America is not an imperialist country since we were uh, founded in opposition to British imperialism. How do you marry that to, the, to that claim to the reality of conquering of Indian nations, the occupation of Cuba, Haiti, the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and most recently places in the Middle East? Well, I don't know that we're occupying any places in the Middle East right now, but have we made mistakes along the way in, in terms of foreign policy? Absolutely. I, I actually address that in the book right, right around that. I think, I think maybe one page after that. We've made some mistakes for sure. I'm completely against nation building. But you know, when we fought communism and we fought Nazism, uh, we didn't fight in Vietnam and then just take Vietnam as a satellite nation. We didn't fight Nazi Germany and then make it America. We didn't fight, you know, Russia and then make the American. We tried sometimes very mistakenly or very haphazardly or not very well uh, to export the ideas of freedom, export the ideas of capitalism and democracy, which I think are the good ideas. We've done it in very sloppy ways. Sometimes we've done it in very backwards ways. I mean, the Iraq war, uh, most people would say was a horrific horrific mistake. And, you know, really nobody has paid for it. And by the way, Joe Biden voted for it. Um, so I would say we're not imperialistic in that we aren't nation building. Well, certainly anymore, we are not trying to nation build across the world and expand the American empire. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, as I said, referenced earlier, I think Trump was particularly good at that in that we weren't going to do that sort of thing. You know, within within two months, 
or not two months, within the, say, eight months of this administration, not only did we have it, there was another war in the Middle East after we had four years of quiet, uh, but then there was this disaster in Afghanistan. So, so I would say it's extremely, it's extremely complex. And none of that is to deny that there were Native Americans living here. Absolutely, there were Native Americans living here. And by the way, they were warring with each other too. And no country that exists on earth doesn't have uh, some blood on its hands. That's, that's just right. the absolute reality. So the question really is, okay, do we want to just disassemble every country everywhere? Because that's what really we would be doing. If every country had to say, we were, we were born pure and there was, there was nothing wrong. There was no, nobody was hurt. Yeah, but in, I, I don't in, think in that's the argument, Dave. No, that, I don't think that is the argument. I'm sorry. I, 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 don't, I don't think that's the argument. I think it's saying, acknowledging that America has engaged in imperialist activity. That's, that's all. It's not saying that other countries haven't done it. Of course, the British, uh, you know, were, were an imperialist nation, the French, all the Western European nations and, and other nations around the world have, have engaged in, in violent imperial behavior. But the thing is to acknowledge that the United States has also been involved in that. But you mentioned Afghan refugees. I wanna get you out of here, but I have just like two more questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned Afghan refugees and we've spoken to several people on our podcast who have spoken about their desire to bring Afghan refugees to the U.S. for resettlement. In your book, you criticize Angela Merkel for accepting Afghan refugees. Are you against the resettling of Afghans who have assisted our military uh, into the United States? Or well, where's your just, position on that? Yeah, yeah, just related to Angela Merkel. I mean, you don't only really have to listen to her words to understand that she believes she made a mistake by basically allowing a million, a million plus migrants into her country in a very short amount of time that caused all sorts of social upheaval, that caused an absolutely catastrophic economic strain on the country. Also, European countries have not done multiculturalism nearly as well as America has. For, for whatever our flaws are, European yeah, countries have that. created much more ghettoized societies than we've done here in America. As for the Afghans now, the people that, especially people that helped America or that were somehow involved in some of the things that we were doing there, I'd be for allowing some, you know, if we vet them properly and we can figure out ways that they will actually have jobs and not just be thrown here into some random city and then just be put on the government dole and then that creates cascading problems over generations. Yeah, I mean, I think if people helped us as Americans or if they're truly persecuted, by the way, not just economic migrants who wanna come and we should have open borders to let everybody in, but if there are truly persecuted people, uh, then of course, by the way, I would also say that my, my friend Glenn Beck did a far better job at, at this than the United States government. We picked up and left. Glenn Beck personally raised, at last I heard, I think it was around $40 million in two weeks and got about 10,000 Christian Afghanis out of the country to safety. So this is where I would say, you know, you, you want to do as much privately as you can publicly. So you, you would agree that the same thing goes for Haitian migrants uh, that came to our border uh, now you, you believe the ones who, who are persecuted should be allowed to resettle in the United States. We should have some policy related to that, but I'm not for people just flooding the border, getting into our detention center. Everything that the government's doing right now is basically wrong, but let's put it that way. I mean, you can watch, uh, you know, the Homeland Security uh, Secretary Mayorkas. We just played a video of his on my show a couple of days ago. He's basically like, yeah, there were 17,000 people at the border. We right. let about 10 or 12,000 in. We're not exactly sure where they are and we'll kind of see what happens. Well, I mean, that just makes no sense to me. A, a country only exists because it has borders. Uh, but also, you know, if we're to believe that we're in the midst of this pandemic, you can only watch the videos yourself and see that these people are not social distancing and not wearing masks. So I'm not really, I, I'm for tight borders as a general rule. And every country, by the way, I yeah. would say has the same duty to protect its borders as it sees fit. That we should be every country on earth. We should be generous, but we shouldn't be pushovers. We shouldn't be taken for a ride. I mean, we've got so many of the Haitians who are arriving at our Southern border. We're throwing their Chilean uh, identification cards down on the Mexican side of the border because uh, they suspected they would have a better shot if they left the American government with the impression that they were merely Haitian uh, and not right. already refugees in Chile. Uh, so and by the way, by the way, 
to be generous, there are times to be generous for sure. When America had its burst of immigrants, so say in the you know in the early 1920s, uh, early 1930s, when there was this burst of immigration from you know mostly from Eastern Europe, it was yeah. like the nation needed more people, and then that created the greatest generation, that created the baby boomers, that created incredible economic revival in this country like the world had never seen. Right now, does it feel like we're in this great economic situation? Does it seem like we've conquered the pandemic? Does it seem like our machinery is working at any level in America that we should right now be like, oh, and we'll be generous to everyone who wants to come here? It just doesn't make sense. When things are really going well and the machine is operating and we can find more room to expand freedoms to other people and, and the immigrant story, we're, we're all children so, of immigrants. So let me ask another, you- then great. In that case, what about say 2018 when we were at full employment? Uh, would that been a would that have been a time to let some of these Haitian immigrants and Afghan immigrants and other immigrants around the world, even though we were at that time being very strict on immigration, that would yeah. have been the time to allow lots of people into the United States because we were prospering, no? Um, I don't know about lots. We could discuss the number for sure. But yes, when we're when we're prospering, we we are a nation that helps other people. And if there are people that are truly out there that are are fleeing horrible situations which uh, which obviously exists when the economy you're right when the economy in the middle of the trump years pre-covid the economy was going great we weren't spending money on crazy wars we were lowering taxes all of those things that would be an opportunity to say okay what can we do the problem is that we never have an honest conversation of oh what would a number look like that maybe we could help these people or when we resettle them and we bring them to a city do do we have to pay them for two years to be here? And what does that mean for the people that who are here? The problem with, since you mentioned uh, Merkel in Germany, the problem that happened in Germany is they brought all those people, they started giving them a ton of stuff. And then the average German person was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've lived so, here my whole life. They're not giving me anything and they're giving so, all these people things. And then it causes, you know, it causes anger between the groups. So Dave, let, let me just, uh, ask you one other question that's kind of yeah. related to that. And that is, yeah, and then my, my guys are giving me the signal. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. In the, in the early 1980s, when we let thousands upon thousands, around hundred thousand Cuban Americans into the country, Cuban Americans have been one of the most prosperous uh, groups, um, immigrant groups of all time in, in the United States. And we let lots of them into the country at that time, we were experiencing an economic downturn. So by your logic, we should not have let all those Cuban Americans in. Is that correct? No, because you have to judge every every individual instance on its own. Cuba, I was just in Miami. There's obviously a crazy amount of Cubans in Miami. You you meet Cubans who are, by the way, the most pro-America, possibly sure. the most pro-America group that you can find in terms of national origin because they were fleeing communism, right? They were fleeing sort of state-sponsored tyranny. They've come here, made extraordinary successes for themselves. I mean, listen to Marco Rubio's family story anytime. You'll hear an incredible Cuban immigrant story. The country has to figure out times when it can take more people and when it can't. But you I base that on economics though, right? I think, but it's based it's based on economics, but it's also based on what's happening socially, what's happening culturally. Right now we're in a time in America where everything is fraying. And it's like, we need to, we need, look, if your whole house is burning down, you don't invite other people into the burning down house. I think we have to make sure that the structure and the foundation of our house is right. And right. if we can do that, then we can have an honest conversation about immigration. But in times, if the house is perfect and we're like, man, we could put an extension over there and we can add some more rooms and we can bring these people in and they're not just going to live here and squat here, they're actually going to be part of the fabric of America, then that is the beautiful American story. It's just that it can't be done always at all times just because, yeah. you know, we're here. In other words, take yeah. care of your people first yeah. here in the United yeah. States. Yeah, uh, Dave, the same way you would your family. Dave Absolutely. Rubin, thank you again. Generous with your time today, the host of the Rubin Report and responsible for so many other great projects. Thank you, Dave. Great to talk to you, sir. Thanks, Dave. I, I enjoyed it, it, guys. I, I like a little healthy debate. This was a nice way to start the day. So have a good one, guys. Awesome. You too. You too. Take care. All right.